I need to know everything Who and the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But act like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws To turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you'll be surprised At the info you get Is by letting them talk Hey everyone I'm Ashley Asty, And I'm curious Aren't you? I'm Curious Podcast Brings the unfamiliar closer I'm telling stories and sharing conversations with people who remind us that love demands we move toward justice and that we're all connected. This opening music is called Curious George by Nate Rose. All right, let's get to it. I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything. Who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, there's five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now they ain't go harder than me. I feel like this episode made me fall in love with Serena Liguori as a woman and a activist, and and for all she is in the world. After two months off from this podcast, I wanted to come back with this episode because Serena is not only an abolitionist fighting for transformation of systemically unjust systems, including incarceration. But as you can tell from this episode, she is a storyteller. She tells her story and the stories of women she's encountered over the years brilliantly. And she has this special gift of not only being in the trenches each day, but being able to step back and reflect and envision. Serena is the executive director of New Hour for Women and Children Long Island, a nonprofit dedicated to supporting women and children impacted by incarceration. I mentioned that she's a, a good storyteller, and, and prior to leading New Hour, she was the executive director of Her Story Writers Workshop, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing marginalized voices into the public arena. So that power of all voices being able to be seen and heard and fully expressed. Serena was the key organizer of a successful effort to create the Adoption and Safe Families Act Expanded Discretion Law, which works to secure parental rights for incarcerated parents, as well as the Anti-Shackling Law, which prohibits the shackling of incarcerated mothers during labor, which is just wild to me that there had to be a law that stopped people from shackling women while giving birth if they were incarcerated at that time. She is such a treat. We explore and unpack her story from growing up poor, but sort of not knowing it and, and still being filled with positive experiences and love to all the women she met behind bars and how that transformed her and, and uh, fueled her work to her depth as an activist and even her intentions as a mother what I love is that you can feel that she's a woman who's in her power and helping other women remember their power too. So without further ado, let's dive in. I guess the first thing I should say, Serena, is that, you know, our, our paths have, have crossed before, but I, I realized this morning before this conversation that I've never gotten to really like sit down with you and hear your story and talk to you like more in depth about your work. And this is something you and I have been talking about doing for a long time. And so I'm glad that we're finally able to do this and just grateful for you. Thanks, Ashley. I'm, I'm, I'm really super excited to be here. Um, and like I was saying before, 
I think when you're an organizer or you're running an organization or you're, you know, being an activist, very rarely do you have the time to have um, the self-reflection. And I've listened to your podcasts and, and they've kind of mirrored so many things or so many things have resonated when listening to them that when you first talked about joining a podcast, I was like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, <laughs> because it feels like that kind of exhale moment where you have time to pause and think about, um, you know, what's most important and why we do what we do. Um, and it's interesting because when I meet certain people, I can really feel that, you know, whatever it be, their energy or, you know, just who they are, that it really resonates with my life vision and my mission and um, the things that are most important to me. And I feel like when we met, that was one of the things yeah. I was like, I really want to get to know her. Yes. Um, <laughs> Because because of that, <laughs> I you know, I it was it was instant. This I a couple times I brought my mom with me to drop off things, and she just felt that energy immediately. We were talking about it the other day, and she's like, "What's the name of the place that I love to go to?" And I knew exactly what she was talking about because you and everyone there, there's just this sense of love and authenticity at New Hour, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. But that yes, that energy is mutual, and I'm hoping we can also have some space in this conversation to talk about that that reflection, because I feel like it's integral to any sort of organizing and there isn't a lot of space sometimes or time for it. Um, but we'll, so we'll, we'll get to that. But I actually wanted to start a little bit with your beginnings and your early life, really your story. Um, I want to know, I guess, like what shaped you, where you came from, who were the people that shaped you? Yeah, um, I grew up uh, sort of an evangelical Christian, um, which I continue to <laughs> undo <laughs> the, the, the harm that um, parts of that religion um, played on my life. And also, you know, respect that that may be what works for many, many people. Um, but being raised that way was, you know, not by choice, obviously, you're raised by your parents and, and their views. And um, I think a lot about um, being raised by a single mom and really struggling. We, we, we did not have uh, any money. Um, we had social services and I remember the refrigerator not really having a lot of food. Um, and so there's a lot of things that were part of my childhood that were um, difficult, but there was, you know, there was also a lot of positivity, you know, kids never know if they're poor or not. I didn't, you know, I just knew this was like our life. And I had a really sort of protected sheltered childhood. I played outside only a half hour of TV a day, three or four times a week we were in church. Um, you know, I was taught sex is bad and, uh, you know, uh, relationships with boys are bad. And there was a lot of bad. Right. <laughs> um, and so in that, um, in that respect, I, I also was homeschooled. So um, I had sort of a really um, very unique educational experience. And when I went to school, I was like two grades ahead because, <laughs> um, you know, I think, you know, when you're being homeschooled, you're really being taught well. 
And I think looking back, I really struggled with feeling that I wasn't normal because Mm -hmm. I was homeschooled. I was a Christian. My mom was a single mom. Um, and I had a lot of, um, I don't know, just hangups about who I was in the world in Mm -hmm. general. And, um, and then when, um, our family survived a tragedy, um, that brought me to prison, that was just exacerbated, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so you already feel like you're a little bit different than people. Um, I remember my like first day of high school and I was like the new kid. So they were like, where did you move from? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, no, I've lived in this town all my life. I've just never gone to school. So it was really interesting. Um, I had really low self-esteem and just didn't even know that. And never thought I was even close to pretty or smart or, you know, and part of, part of this is, you know, I look back and wonder, I don't know if that was my upbringing or if that was being, you know, sort of sheltered or if that was just me, right? Like having to kind of move through life and see yourself in the world. Um, Yeah. I'm wondering what your relationship to your community or even to like connecting to others and building friends. I think that's something, at least in my own journey, I look back and think I was always very independent, do it alone, felt different for different ways, reasons, but, and that has shifted over time and it's affected, I think, how I approach work and how I approach the world and, and sort of having to have a new learning. What was your, at least when you look back now and reflect on it, what was your like relationship with community and people? I, you know, I was really involved in dance. I Mm. was um, going to ballet and tap and jazz. And my mother was, you know, we were, we were poor and she worked weekends at the dance studio to pay for our lessons. Um, So it was kind of a barter system. And I had a whole community of really women, girls Mm. who I was really, really close with. And yet um, I think that my experiences with men were largely filled with a lot of mistrust and Mm. a lot of, um, you know, patriarchal misogyny. And I think that undercurrent, even as a young girl, um, I felt really uncomfortable and I didn't know why, why am I getting attention? Why am I being Mm. treated this way? Why, you know, why is, you know, this happening? And it's, it's sort of taken a really long time to sort of own my own power and mm. to understand that, you know, that's not okay for, you know, certain men to act a certain way. And yet it was my kind of daily experience. And I think a lot about women who survive violence or who survive um, the intimidation of a patriarchal society. And I think I think that for many women, um, it's almost as though you feel that you have, uh, you know, um, a scarlet letter A on you just because I feel as though there are people who perpetrate violence or harm or even just making you feel really bad about yourself and kind of shitty. I feel like they kind of can pick up that you're like the next victim. Mm -hmm. And I think that that played into my life quite a bit. 
And looking back, I wouldn't have named it because it was not any one big issue, but it was sort of an ongoing persistent issue. And I think part of it had to do with the fact that I was so sort of sheltered and innocent and kind of, um, you know, not able to kind of demand the respect that I deserved. And um, that's like a really long learning curve (laughs) to get there. (laughs) I think, you know, even like removing that sort of self-blame too, because I think that's a lot of, and that's why we're having this Me Too movement, other things that are happening is because young girls can feel that something's off. Like this, there's just this feeling that like, this is not right, or I, I feel uncomfortable. And yet if we're not given the language or someone's not telling us like, that's not okay. And you have the power to, you know, whatever it might be, we're, we're thinking like we're doing something wrong and we take it on ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that the micro, you know, sort of the microaggressions that are um, part of an, you know, an existence as a woman in the world, for the most part, I feel like those, those pieces are so harmful and detrimental. And um, I have such an allergic reaction to that now, where I will like call it out anytime I see it, if I can, because I watch it continue to happen to other women who are younger or, um, you know, who don't know how to stand up or say something. And it's like anything, right? Like once you call it out, it doesn't have power over you. Mm. Um, so yeah. Um, I'm also curious now, so you were really young when you went to prison, like 19, right? You're like really young. How did that also shape you or awaken you to the experiences of other women? You know, um, it's really interesting because I always say that I sort of had this coming of age experience in prison and um, I remember being just terrified of going to prison and, you know, really feeling like I'm just not going to survive this. Mm. And what I found when I went to prison was largely black and brown women who took me under their wing, who cooked for me, who were dear friends of mine. And to this day are still very much um, a sisterhood. And I feel sort of lucky because so many of the women that I was in prison with now are, you know, not, not everyone's home, but many of them are home and doing incredible, amazing work, leading movements and organizations. And um, we used to walk in the yard in the prison and talk about what we would do when we went home. Mm. And for me, I thought when I came home at 21, 22, I think I just, just was just about to turn 22. Um, I just thought I'd go back to life before prison yeah. and that I could just kind of put it all behind me and pretend that kind of didn't happen and just kind of go back to my normal life. Mm -hmm. And the truth is it's, you know, I've said this before. It's kind of like, if you've been to Vietnam, you're not the same, you're going to come back a completely harmed and shattered person. And you're going to have to build from there. Um, And prison was incredibly emotionally challenging because, um, you know, yes, I mean, did I have harm? You know, I was 
I was uh, assaulted by a medical doctor during an exam. I was um, put in solitary when I helped an older woman with her legal papers and I didn't know it and got in trouble. Um, You know, painful, sad things happened, but ultimately um, it taught me a lot about finding that group of sisters that you can always depend on. I want to talk to you in a moment about your experience in reentry, but the other thing you'd mentioned, you said you felt like you weren't going to survive this experience in prison. And one of the things I realize as I get older is that when we go through periods of like wintering or like a dark season in our life, sometimes they can feel like, especially like there were real harms that were, this was not just like an, this was real, um, that it can feel like you're never going to get out of it, or you don't know how you're going to weather it. But as you can get older and have a perspective, you start understanding that sometimes there's there's light in these spaces, or there's possibly something on the other side. Like what helped you start? I guess it was the sisterhood that started weathering that, right? Yeah, I mean, I also had um, a lot of friends and support from my community. I was really overwhelmed by how many people understood um, maybe not what happened, but the victimization that I had survived and the mental health issues my family had survived. And I had, you know, people coming to visit and letters being written. And I was really connected to to people in my community. And I think that the other thing that really kind of resonated with me is I had a therapist that I was seeing when I was out on bail. And she said to me, you have to remember this is just for now. This is Mm -hmm. not forever. And um, three years in prison, doesn't seem like very long if you've done 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, but three years in prison as a teenage, you know, kind of young woman felt like the rest of my life. Yeah. And so um, I look back at that time and I, you know, I have friends of mine who've done, you know, 25, 30 years. And one of them, she came home and she said to me, your time is your time, whether it was two Mm -hmm. months or two years or 20 years, you're, we're all doing time. We've all done that time. And um, she said, you know, you were a very, very uh, fragile and shattered young woman at that time. And so now I look back with compassion on that person that I was, and that's not to say I'm this, you know, <laughs> never fearful person now, but, um, but I'm very, very different than yeah. that person then. Yeah. You mentioned that going back to your, like you thought you'd return to your normal life. In what ways did that like illusion, how was that shattered? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, um, I had a, uh, I had a really hard time finding a job. Um, and I had a sort of loneliness of being reunited with friends from my college and my high school and my my best friends in the world from church and realizing that I felt really lonely even with them because there were all these experiences that I had that they couldn't relate to and um you know frankly many of the women who I was in in prison with 
we had some really fun and beautiful times. My, my 21st birthday was in prison and my two, my two best friends there made a cake on the, on the hot pot stove and, you know, they sang happy birthday. Some of the officers sang with us too. One of them, Mr. Mr. D was so sweet to us. Um, And so I had these like wonderful moments, even in prison and I think a lot of women did, right? Like, um, I remember meeting other, you know, Latinx women, Spanish women, um, there was Colombian women, I'm Puerto Rican, but I had a group of friends who would cook Spanish food and listen to music. And it, it felt like, um, I finally felt at home with my culture and I hadn't had that growing up in like a white suburban community, even though of course I had it with my grandmother, my abuela, we cook and, you know, all of that within my extended family with, you know, as Puerto Rican, obviously. Um, But I didn't have that sense of community. And so I actually ironically found that in, in prison. (laughs) I'm wondering if that's, or at least I feel like that's something that knew our actively cultivates because sometimes we might feel like we're going through something as I imagine especially something like this like you're talking about you come home to this white suburban neighborhood and you know does anyone else relate to this but it's by having that sense of like kinship of other people have gone through this before even if it's not something that you'd wish upon them to have gone through before that you start having this sense of belonging where you can be authentically yourself in this safe space talk to me about uh new hour and, and that aspect of it you know, it's interesting because I've heard people and you hear it in movies, you hear it on TV shows um, where you people will say, you know, um, you have to create your own future and you have to create your own present and you have to um, bring, you know, the answer to finding is, is not being rescued. It's rescuing yourself and finding yourself is is really about how do you create um, options within yourself. And I, I think that That's really, really true. And I don't even know that I had the, I sort of had the intentionality of creating a space that allowed for reentry support that I never received when Mm -hmm. I came home. And yet I think even at that time, seven years ago, um, I really didn't know how deeply needed and useful that space would be for so many other women and and their families. and. you know, um, I was working at the Correctional Association in the city and had come back to Long Island to work, um, had my son, he was just a baby, he was about yeah. two or three. And I f- was feeling kind of lost. Um, I think, you know, motherhood's a whole nother topic where you think it's going to be great. And it's like, no, I want to go back to work. Yeah. Um, but um, so when George and Patty Krauss, um, you know, who our residents of Southampton and our, our founding um, donors and philanthropists, you know, when I met with George, um, he was put in touch with us by Sister Tisa Fitzgerald, and she run, used to run our children. She founded a reentry and, and, you know, housing for women in Queens. And he had said, you know, I want to do something for, for women on Long Island. My wife visited the jail. She was appalled that there was no services for women. And when I met with him, he said, well, if you had money, what would you do? And I just sort of thought I would create programming that allowed for all of the support that I never received when I came home. And ultimately for a safe space 
for survivors of harm and incar mm -hmm. incarceration, mental health issues, domestic violence, abuse, um, where they could feel um, seen. And, and that is kind of what brings me energy every day when, you know, there's, a, there's a lot that goes into running a nonprofit, but mm -hmm. the thing that brings me the most sort of joy and really fills my spirit with energy is, you know, we had a woman who came in right before the holidays and she said, I just, I just, I just always felt so different because of what I've survived, surviving incarceration. And when I came through these doors, I felt at home. And that is like, right. Like that is what you ultimately want to not just provide, but like, that is like the Mecca, right? Like that is yeah. the goal of my existence. <laughs> yeah. And what, like a, what a powerful and meaningful purpose in the world. This is, I don't even know how to ask this question because I feel like it's almost obvious, but what, like, how would you describe, and this is a diverse answer, but the women that you serve, I think, like, what would surprise listeners? I think there's this, like, lexicon of, like, the ex-con or the, and I'm air quoting for people who obviously can't see me, like, we have, we, you know, people who are not impacted by incarceration have this perhaps idea of what, you know, these, these people, again, in quotes, these others, uh, can you just talk about like the human beings? Yes. Um, it's really, really interesting because we meet so many women. Um, we work with over a thousand women a year and, we have so many women coming for um, support after re, you know, in reentry to our office space. And we had one woman who um, was sort of guarded and a little bit intimidating looking. And she looked kind of like, don't cross me. And we were getting ready for the toy drive. And there was a, a little baby doll um, in the corner that we were going to give to one of the you know, children visiting the jail, visiting a parent in the jail. And she looked at it and she said, I love that baby doll. She said, I never had one like that when I was a little girl. And, um, you know, we, we gave her the baby doll and she was so happy. And it's, it's, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to say that every single woman that walks through our door is like, you know, falling apart once we help them, but it, it did feel like this, really important moment of recognizing that most and almost all, all of our women, I would say, have survived tremendous harm. And much of that harm was done to them as young girls and as young women. Um, and, 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 you know, however they identify just as young people. And so providing a space where they can just feel that they have a moment to breathe is absolutely like, you know, it's important. And years ago I did, um, I did a radio program with then Senator Tom Duane, who was a Senator in the city. And he said, describe to me the women who you were in prison with. Um, and I said, you know, it's interesting because if I put them all into a room and put a whole bunch of other women into a room, yeah. we just all look the same, like grandmothers and aunts and young women and old women and, and all different kinds of women. And, and I think people often um, don't realize that if they were to ever visit a prisoner jail, they're just seeing people yes. and not <laughs> quote unquote, ex -con or right. current convicts or criminals. Um, and I think that our community 
would be so much better off if everyone had to visit a prisoner jail at least once just to see what's really there. Because I think that the media and TV shows and even true crime shows, Mm -hmm. um, they do so much harm in creating these unrealistic and um, really harmful um, perceptions of people behind bars. And you know, I say all the time, New Hour's work is about creating accountability. We've we've never said, oh, it's okay that you did X, yeah. Y, or Z. Um, <clears throat> what we've said is, you know, you've got to take responsibility for what happened or what 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 you were involved in. But we also understand that there are deep systemic issues that led to maybe your poverty or your domestic violence Mm -hmm. or mental health issues. So harm begets more harm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I feel deeply that there's no woman who should be incarcerated. I really feel that there's, there are so many other ways to treat mental health issues, anger issues, substance abuse issues, um, abuse, and, and prison is just not a qualifier for, 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 for a safe space. Do you find that, that so many women who are incarcerated have experienced uh, mental health issues or abuse or something like that? And then they're essentially being housed in a place that's not providing them with opportunities to heal in the way that I think not only would serve them, but all of us, we are all connected. Yeah. You know, I think a lot about what people who really deeply believe in the carceral system, what would, what would, what would they imagine that the carceral system does? And I think there's sort of two buckets to that. There are folks who have been deeply hurt and harmed by other people, and they really want retribution. They're really Mm -hmm. hurt and angry and sad, and they really want someone to suffer for what they did to their family member or themselves um, or their loved one. And, and I get that. Um, but I also feel that, um, throwing someone away for weeks, months, years, decades, ultimately is not creating any, um, reparative healing to the victim or, and I also think that so many people forget that, like, you know, 98% of folks incarcerated are going to come home. Mm-hmm. And if we haven't given them support and their and and healed wounds, we're actually actively participating in keeping our community a violent one. You know, it's it's like we're actively supporting bringing harm back to the community um, because we haven't done anything to support healing. Yeah, I was actually having a conversation with Elizabeth Rappaport. I don't know if you know her. She's involved with the Release Aging People from Prisons uh, campaign. And she was describing the incarceration of women, particularly mothers, as a calamity, like this social disaster. Can you talk about that? Like the effect or the impacts that incarceration, especially of women and, and moms, has on their children? You know, about 75% of women behind bars are mothers. and What I saw at Bedford Hills, which is the maximum facility for women, is mothers receiving visits from their children on a regular basis and mothering them from across the table in a visiting room. Mm. And I think that as a young woman, I didn't have children when I went to prison. um, 
I didn't really understand the deep um, harm that mothers survive when they're incarcerated. And now that I'm a mother and my son's <laughs> 10 and a half, I literally cannot imagine the pain of being separated from him or having him sit in a visiting room. Um, I think that women very much are the sort of breath of the family. They're the mm-hmm. life, they're the, the force, right? Like the glue. And I don't mean to kind of um, negate the value of, of fathers and, and, and men in, in, in families. But I think that children, um, it's interesting because I think that if we will, if we as a community are promoting the use of prisons and jails, we're actually promoting harm to children Mm. and children deserve to have their parents. And when they are separated from them and not able to communicate with them or being cut off on a collect call after a half hour, 20 minutes, um, these, these, the distance, the isolation that prison and jail creates, um, really does irreparable damage to children because now this is becoming their reality. And I've had officers and other people say to me, well, you know, their parents should have thought about this before they committed a crime. Right. And, um, and I think that, uh, and, and not just off correctional officers, but people, community members too. And I think about, well, what if this mother had had support intervention, a safe space to get help before this crime was committed. You know, mm-hmm. I've I've met a lot of women over the years, women who were incarcerated, hundreds of women who've survived incarceration. And I don't think I've met one who I can really say, well, if she hadn't had proper intervention, she would still end up here. Yeah. You know, I think that the truth is <laughs> that community has failed. Our social mm-hmm. systems have failed humans. Yeah. And that is what absolutely creates harm behind bars. Yeah. These are not evil, again, air quoting people or bad people. Like there are systems in place that are fueling this giant incarceration system. And they're not, these systems are not equal or just or, or fair. Um, although I'm, sw- even though that's a big topic, I'm switching for a moment. I want to <laughs> <laughs> talk about um, Emerge. Tell me what Emerge is. Yeah. Um, so when I was working at the Correctional Association, uh, Association, they had a program called Reconnect. And Reconnect would have um, weekly meetings with women who'd come home from incarceration. We were in Harlem on 125th Street. Um, actually, we were on 15th Street, and then we moved uptown to 125th Street. So I was I was there during that time. And the program was about empowering women to understand the systemic reasons why they were incarcerated, to understand the community, um, educate them about the community outside of incarceration. Um, And I remember we would run the classes and we'd bring in speakers from, you know, different organizations or to talk about grassroots organizing. Um, It was kind of a lyceum, like a training of sorts. And I remember being really just in awe of what I didn't know. Mm. And when I was at the Correctional Association, that was um, 
I was a policy associate. So I wasn't really taking the class. I was helping to assist the class. And as I sat in, I was learning so much that hadn't been given to me when I was, um, you know, first home. Um, and so that program I wanted to replicate on Long Island because for many Long Islanders getting into the city is like, whoa, that's a whole other, whole other big process. You know, taking the train, it's expensive. I don't know my way. I can't take the subway. Um, there's a lot of barriers and fear that I think a lot of Long Islanders face when it comes to feeling, um, that they don't belong in the city. And so we try to really bring um, folks who are doing incredible work in the city to Long Island and also connect women on Long Island who are home to services in their community. Um, One thing that I learned when I was working in the city was that there was this sort of whole incredible network of resources and and money and support um, and really smart, focused organizers uh, that Long Island just didn't, it didn't exist on Long Island. And so like the suburban desert of um, activism is really, really what's like happening out here. And it's, it's kind of why I wanted Emerge to take place and um, Emerge means empowering methods of effective reentry, growth and engagement. Mm. Um, So that's like a long (laughs) acronym, but, but we, you know, Danielle, my program director and I, we, we kept going back and forth. Like, what does it mean to feel empowered when, you know, um, to emerge into who you are, to fully become who you are. Um, And it's interesting because I think that a lot of the conversations I have with my son now as uh, a, a boy, he has questions and he'll, you know, we'll talk about the fact that the Spider-Man movie came out and there's a scene in Spider-Man where um, there's a conversation about, you know, are the bad guys really bad or can we mm. fix them? Can we help them? Wow. Um, and I, I found it incredibly powerful because... I think that's the conversation that we should all be having with our children and our Mm -hmm. loved ones, right? Like, are people really innately bad forever? Or is it that they have, you know, like one of the characters in Spider-Man had like a a, a bad gear or something (laughs) and and had to be replaced and, you know, had suffered harm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that those conversations are the ones that I think we as, you know, folks who are bringing forward the next generation have to continue to have with our children and our loved ones and our neighbors. Um, because I think that that really does change the perspective on lock them up and throw away the key. It's talking about motherhood. What's your intention with raising your children now? Not, and this is not to like not how you were raised or how anyone was raised, but I imagine everyone has lessons that they've learned from that. How, and just your life experience, what are your intentions now based on that? (laughs) You know, um, I wish I could say I had some, (laughs) some, some really thoughtful plan for raising a child. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I think that, um, I had uh, a pediatrician once tell me because I was talking to the pediatrician about something and they said, you know what, 
it's really not about what you tell your children. It's really, they're watching you. They're watching mm. how you act and, and, and how you are. Yeah. And I think that for the most part, um, my intention is to raise a son who's compassionate, um, who truly understands his privilege as a, as a male in the world, um, and is willing to support and help other people. And I think, I think that compassion and empathy can go a really long way. I think they can overcome racism. I think they can overcome, um, a lot Mm. in our community. If you, if you have that deep sense of empathy for others and, um, I, I think that's right. Like that, that success as a parent, if you raise children who are, are engaged now, of course, would I want him to be an amazing, <laughs> uh, abolitionist organizer? Sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, he's, he's got his own path too. You know, you don't, yeah. you don't know what your children will, will take forward, um, into the world. That makes me think about change is something you actively organize for change. And yet you also talked about almost this perspective shift that needs to happen. That's like coming from love or compassion to you. And like, this is a big question that I'm, I don't know how you're going to like boil it down into a little <laughs> answer, but what are some of the elements that create change? You know, um, I, a, a couple of months ago, um, I was at a conference and one of the speakers at the conference was so compelling to me. And he has, you know, he's, he's done lots of movement building across uh, different, in different countries. And one of the interesting things that he talked about is he, he took a, a look at movements like Black Lives Matter and other movements that have created like deep cultural change. And one thing that I took away from that conversation is it has to reach a fever pitch where everyone is aware of this, you know, Mm. Colin Kaepernick and on one knee, um, these, these sort of seminal moments that no one can deny have existed. Um, you know, no one can deny the existence of, and I think that to sort of reach that moment, it needs to be that the community at large is deeply aware and talking about it at dinner and talking about it at the mechanic shop and um, having the conversations at their friends' parties. And that's, that's a challenge. That's really hard to do because like all people, we're wrapped up in our own relationships and lives and experiences um, and families. And to be thinking in a broader way about the community it, it takes, it takes a lot. Um, and so I think about that a lot with the issues I care about, right? Like creating carceral reform, um, ending the use of prisons and jails for, for women, uh, you know, repairing harm in our community, gun violence, all of these things that are like sort of big, heavy issues. What will it take for our community to really feel engaged around these issues? And, deeply um, moved to take action. And we created the Long Island Social Justice Action Network, which is sort of like a meeting of the minds for people who are community organizers, are lawyers, are just community members 
who care about issues of race, issues of policing, issues of um, inequity. And that, that group, I think a lot of times about what it will take to really move in, you know, movement building is not just about me and my, you know, 25 friends who all believe the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really about how do you engage the full, fullest part of the community? Um, and I don't have the answer. <laughs> I, have, I haven't found the answer to that yet. <laughs> but I think that awareness of it's like a bridge building. It's not just like you said, people who are in your little bubble and like, this is how we feel, but how do you reach that fever pitch? Um, I guess the other thing, and this is sort of how we had started our conversation, you said it takes a lot. So mm -hmm. talk to me about the power of the pause, because when there's this like urgency around it and you believe in the cause and you feel like, the, like you know how important and needed this is, how do you yourself as a leader of an organization pause? Yeah, I, I love that question because I think about what it takes to sort of fuel my soul and what it takes for me to feel um, that I haven't lost sight of the vision and mission in the busyness mm -hmm. of the work. Um, and I was just thinking that of, of one other thought, which is, I know that there are certain community members who are really on fire about like police reform or really on fire about X, Y, and Z issue. And I think that oftentimes we don't connect the dots that all of these, you know, systemic societal issues are deeply connected to each other. Mm. And I'll be the first one to say, you know, my passion is prison reform and justice reform. And so when I think about other issues, I'm always sort of thinking about them in relation to the issue I care about. Mm. But when we as a community can see all of these issues sort of pulling together, um, we can really create effective change. And um, I think that the thing that sustains me most in this work is having those sort of deep, quiet conversations with colleagues who um, have the same mission that I do. And, you know, for such a long time, even as a young girl, I felt so different than the community I lived in. And I always sort of felt like something's missing to these conversations. Yes, I like dressing up and makeup and going out, but there were, there were pieces of me that felt so unfulfilled in those spaces. And I could tell that I had friends, family, community members who were completely happy with a certain level of awareness. And for me now, um, I recognize that uh, sustaining relationships and friendships and, and, and conversations with people who deeply understand what, what your goals and visions are around changing your community or growing, um, uh, that's where I finally feel at home. And mm -hmm. so it's like, you know, people talk a lot about like, find your tribe. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've done that yet, but I do feel that, when I walk into the office space that we have and surrounded by staff who deeply care about these issues and, and have been deeply impacted and, mm -hmm. and possibly harmed by the carceral system, um, it is a safe space to feel uh, at home. And mm -hmm. I think that's so important. I love that word home. It just has that like energy to it. 
my my last question for you and i i saw that you had shared a poem i had written the other day and i was talking about how the sudden revelation of like thinking back like oh my younger self would be delighted by who i am today like what a revelation i did i hadn't realized that you know spent too long focused on disappointment or all these other things and i thought oh wow like if you know my 10 year old self would see the woman i am yeah. i think she'd be delighted i want to know because i have no doubts that your younger self would be delighted by you what what do you think some of the ways she'd be delighted by you are and indulge in this don't don't be shy <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's it's very interesting um i love that poem and it just resonated so much with me when i read it um i remember uh visiting the jail to run programming in on long island and it was the same jail that i had been incarcerated at um, which is really challenging and hard and, and overwhelming. Um, and I remember when I was first brought into the jail um, as a young woman, uh, I had just been sentenced and I was just getting ready to start my time. Um, and I had picked out like a light purple mauve nail polish that I felt like the color brought me peace and so my nails were painted this color in preparation for what was going to be my sentencing. And I was really um, broken and scared and also deeply traumatized and grieving the loss of so many things in my life and, and, and family members I had lost as a result of the tragedy and so for me, it was like that little bit of nail polish on my nails had meant so much to me. And as I walked through like the sort of central booking area, one of the older, I mean, I was young, so everyone seemed older. <laughs> one, of the, one of the officers said to me, oh, I guess you painted your nails for this, huh? And it just, it, it, it literally took, um, it just took my soul and crushed it because, uh, no, that wasn't my intention at all. It was to give me a little bit of strength and peace that I could feel in, in this, in this color on my nails. And, um, it's interesting because all those years later, I went back to the, the jail and I had to walk through that same area that I had that, um, booking experience with. And as I walked through, it no longer had any power over me, mm. you know, um, there were, officers there and I was saying hello to people and um you know we were going to run programming we had met with the sheriff and I suddenly realized like I'm not that little girl who was so shattered mm. by a derogatory disparaging comment uh and and now if if that were to happen again mm -hmm. it, it just it would never never hurt me the way it did then and so there's this sense of um power and, pr and pride in sort of facing your fears and overcoming your worst nightmares and standing up to patriarchy and misogyny mm. and, um, and being fully in yourself yeah. and understanding that no one can ever take away your sense of self again. Mm. Um, and, and I, I feel like that is a lesson that took a really long time to learn um, and maybe it's just getting older too, you know, you're, you're less likely to put up with people's shit. <laughs> yeah. um, 
but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think looking back now, um, I'm really proud of having survived um, what I have and, mm-hmm. and wanting to put that forward for other, other women who come home. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what a beautiful gift that is to the world, but you standing your power, knowing who you are and expressing that freely in the world. I think it frees up other people to realize, oh, I can do that, too. Um, Before we go, I want to know, how can people find New Hour and support New Hour? Sure. Yeah, we're we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, I'll have the links to all of this, too, so people will find it. Yeah, it's um, we're we're located in Brentwood on the premises of Sisters of St. Joseph's. Um, Our number is 631-273-3300. Our website's www.newhourli.org. And I and one thing I love more than anything is we have an amazing staff and Mm -hmm. anyone who picks up that phone will absolutely support and help. Uh, whether you have been incarcerated or your family member's been incarcerated, um, we we're there to help. And one thing I love about looking at our social media is um, the outpouring of love from our community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like, you know, when you create it, they will come. <laughs> and so um, I, I love to feel sort of the I call it like my Christmas present moment where (laughs) I open up our social media and see the outpouring of people saying, you know, this has helped me or I'm donating to you. Uh, We have our Project Dignity program where people donate um, toiletries and and shampoo and conditioner and things like that to women coming home from incarceration. Uh, And I absolutely love when I take a look at our social media and see like our amazing staffer Jess will will post things on there our communications person and and I'm like oh my gosh wow they know about us <laughs> and it's it's great to it's great to have that space and also I think the recognition that we live in a very uh very segregated suburban closed-minded community in pockets of Long Island not all of Long Island um, but there are certainly pockets where I think that there's still so many barriers that people who've survived incarceration have to face and so I like to think that um, we're helping to sort of break down those barriers a little bit at a time. Mm. You are just um I feel like such a blessing. I'm so grateful that we had this chance to connect and I got to really listen. I, that's been such like the world opening power of this podcast for me is that when I get to listen from, you know, people like you. So I thank you for sharing for how you show up in the world. Um, it might be a little soon, to, but I feel like I'll need to have you back. <laughs> and um I should let people know we're recording this on the second day of 2022. So I feel like this was such a generous way to begin the new year. And I'm grateful for that too. I I love, I love the space and community that you're creating and I feel really honored to be a part of it. And I think that um, these are the kinds of conversations that give me life, right? Like Mm. these are the things that help to fill my soul with what I need to move forward in the world. So this has been a blessing to me. Thank you, Ashley. Ah. <laughs> I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. 
I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, a five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws, to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get just by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in talk up their body, another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes. Stay in your lane, not to stay on the go. I can't play with the pros and act like a rookie, so they overlook me, then I double up again, none of their nose, none of them cold. They just got lucky but never adapted, so I'm telling the one if it's coming to blows. My enemies cutting it close, I let them think that they got me, but what do you know? I had them beat before we ever spoke, I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything, who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything